kid in middle school that was easily overlooked because in middle school there are a lot of kids who are lanky and kind of geeky and dress a little weird and <laughs> they would stand out otherwise for the fact that in middle school again you know middle school there are some kids who look older and there are some kids who look way younger and so he just kind of fit in and was overlooked but now he was going to high school it was a different different game so as a freshman he's going to high school and his mindset is just stay invisible. Just don't stand out. He had uh, old dungarees that his dad wore to the factory that were hand-me-downs. He had ugly patent leather shoes that were worn out that were hand-me-downs from his dad. He had a, a Hanes white t-shirt, V-neck, wasn't even regular, it had to be a V-neck. That was that kind of shirt that even though you wash it 20 times, you can still see the stains hand-me-down from his dad, and his mom reminded him all the time, honey, you have to wear the hand-me-down so we can save money so you can play your internet games. Said, I get it, mom. I get it. And now going to high school, looking like that, still geeky, still lanky, his neck seemed too long, he had reddish straw hair, he had a beautiful array of freckles mixed with pimples, seemed to be oily pretty easy, just, you know, get embarrassed and you just feel the oil come out. Had no problem sweating under the armpits. His voice still hadn't changed. And his name was Eugene. Now, what he didn't have going for him in looks and appearance and living on the wrong side of the tracks and being poor, he didn't have going for him in any other area either. He, he wasn't good in band, he wasn't good in choir, he wasn't you know, he's definitely not athletic, and he was okay in math, and he didn't really understand why, because he didn't really like math, but he was good at it. So his only hope was to get through high school, get okay grades, but get a really good math grade, and maybe get a scholarship in some type of math program, and maybe evolve into what he would feel like as a actual human being. Just stay invisible. Few weeks into school, same routine, go to class, be invisible, go to class, be invisible, go to class, be invisible. And now it's lunchtime, which was his favorite class. Amen, as a husky kid, that was my favorite class too. And he was sitting in the very far back of the cafeteria of this large school, last table, far corner, and he sit there with his two friends, Paul and Jeeva. And Jeeva's parents were from India, but he was American, and they'd sit there during lunch, and they'd have all these conversations about who got how far on the internet game, and all these things that just geeky kids get into, and they're talking and comparing notes, and, and then the bell would ring, lunch is over, and then it was back to that, be invisible. Don't be noticed. Three weeks into school, freshman, he's realizing things are a little tougher here in high school. And he's in biology, but it's just not coming together, not making sense. And uh, he's like, I got to talk to my teacher because I'm going to fight. If I F in this, it could blow my, my, my C curve. And uh, I got to get a good grade. 
talks to his teacher. His teacher understands. He said, listen, why don't you once a week do a paper on a part of the human body or part of the plant or something like that and hand it in just a couple pages and I'll give you extra credit. I'll make sure you keep your grade up. He's like, deal. Whatever Eugene wants to hear. So that afternoon, study hall, he goes to... The library is walking down books, looking through books, and like any geeky kid as a freshman with the self-esteem that he had, remembers an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that he saw on a rerun late one night on TBS, and he remembers seeing Arnold and just like being in awe, you know, looking at this and being in awe, and, and he saw these little tiny muscles right here, or what they were, bones, and so he's like, I'm going to find out what those are. He's digging through books, and man, they're called intercostals, and he finds this book with pictures and explains it. He's just, oh, this is perfect. And he starts to walk down the aisle of all the books, and he's looking at this, looking at this, and he turns the aisle, bam! You're never going to believe this. He runs right into Addison. Addison. Now look, he may be a geeky freshman boy who's trying to be invisible, but even the geeky freshman boy who's trying to be invisible knows who Addison is. And he doesn't just run into her, he's got the book like this, and he runs into her, and his hands bump into her, his, her chest, and he's like, bright red sweat, grease, because this is Addison. I don't think you understand. <laughs> Addison is the senior high girl who's 17 who looks like she's 27. She's beautiful. She's enrapturing. She's just unbelievable. She's amazing. And more importantly, she's kind. She's deeply sweet. She's sincere. She's the girl who will stop in the hallway. I didn't know you were going to be here today, Lori. She's the girl who would stop in the hallway and lean down to the boy in the wheelchair and say, Richard, what would you do this weekend? I went high in my hand. I'm sorry, what would you do this weekend? I went high with my friend. You went to the park with your friend? Uh-huh. Oh, that sounds awesome. Did you have fun? Yeah. Oh, that is so good. I'm so glad you had fun. I'll see you at lunch, okay? Uh-uh. She stopped in the hallway, the heavy set girl. Even though the girl's a junior, she's still trying to play the Eugene game and stay invisible. And Addison would stop and say, Tammy, where'd you, where'd you get your hair done? Oh, as any self-conscious, overweight girl would say, oh, no, I, just, I did it myself. You did it yourself? Wow, that's amazing. This was Addison. Beautiful, kind, loving, sweet, sincere. She was so nice and so kind and so amazing that not even the mean girls talked about her. Because they didn't want to chance the wrath that would come back on them. And the greatest turn on of all, she was innocent. He ran into Addison. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so clumsy. And he goes, ah, ah. 
which is pretty good if you're Eugene to get that out of your mouth. So he steps around her and disappears, just oh, freaking out. Goes to lunch, talks about video games, doesn't say anything to anybody. He's hoping no one saw it for, the, for, for Addison's sake. He didn't want her to be embarrassed. And a few days go by, and now we're into the first week of October, and it's the first school dance. Not a chance, right? Eugene's like, not even on my radar. But he goes to gym class. Ooh, gym class. But he's figured it out. They're studying basketball. So he sits under the hoop and he just rebounds the ball. People are like, that's cool. But as he's rebounding the ball, as freshman boys and sophomore, some sophomore boys were in the class, they can sometimes be crass. Sometimes. And they start to talk about the dance. Who they're going to take. And then as boys start to talk and they get a little arrogant, one says, I'm taking Addison, because everybody knows who Addison is. Another boy says, you're not taking Addison. She'd never go with you. And then another boy says, too late, guys. She's already going with me. And then it just started to spiral down. He started to say, yeah, I got a hotel room, and this is what we're going to do, and I'm going to take her back to the hotel room. And Eugene's just standing there passing balls, because he's like... She would never do that. And he just so badly wanted to stand up and say something, but rule number one, stay invisible. Jim class is over, heads back to the rest of his classes, and now it's Friday of that week, the day of the dance. He's sitting at lunch, he's talking to Paul, talking to Daknar, and just, you know, Really, in a sea of six, seven hundred students, he still just sees Paul and Daknar. That's his world at lunch. But off to the side, he sees this motion in his peripheral vision. Just off to the side, in the hallway, right to the back corner where they sit, next to the trophy case that hasn't had any new trophies since 1974. <laughs> and he keeps seeing this motion, but it's not any, I don't care. And finally, it just bothers him enough where he looks over. And there, 75 feet away, standing in that little hallway, is Addison. And she does this. To which Eugene just turns and goes, not pointing to me, not talking to me. <laughs> yes, level one, you can't get to the golden sword on level one. You got to get, and just starts right back into the game, gaming talk. And there's still this motion, motion. And she's like, what? So he looks over again and she goes, you come here. So again, like any Eugene, he looks behind him. (laughs) But there's a wall there. So he does the universal sign, you know, the one that clarifies everything. (laughs) And then she did the universal sign back. So just, this is Eugene, so we double check. So he goes, uh, hold on a sec, guys. And he just gets up from the table and he starts to walk over. There's only 75 feet. 
But within 75 feet, he's going, what is this? What's going on? Is she setting me up? Are some guys going to grab me? Are they going to stuff me in a locker? Are they going to give me a swirly? No, no, because she's too nice. She would never do that. So why am I walking over here? Why does she want to talk to me? Oh, my goodness, she wants me to tutor her in math. That's got to be it. Somebody told her. Or maybe she's embarrassed that, uh, maybe I embarrassed her in the library. And and he's just panic. And he steps up to her and he's like, And she says, hi, um, first of all, just want to say how embarrassed I am that I ran into you um, last week. I'm, I'm clumsy sometimes, and I just... <sighs> and she says, anyway, um, when I saw you come to school the first day, I, I started asking questions, um, friends of mine, to find out more about you. And, and as she just starts to get into it, one of her friends comes up. And she's like, Addison, you're never going to believe. Mr. Jenkins said we could do the project. And Addison does one of these. Uh, no, not no. And she looks up at Eugene and she looks at Addison. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. And then she looks at Addison and goes, did you tell him yet? And she goes, no, I was about to. Sorry. So her friend looks at Eugene and goes, she's whipped. And I, Eugene's like, whipped means in the current vernacular that she's in love with someone, but she's not obviously in love with me. Maybe she didn't say whipped. Maybe she said she's gypped. She's gypped. I would feel gypped if I ran into me. Or maybe it's... <laughs> flipped. Maybe when I ran into her, then she flipped me. You know, he's like playing all this game. So this girl walks away and Addison's like, well, that's kind of embarrassing. Um, anyway, um, I know that the dance is tonight. And he's like, she needs a ride. Okay. Well, I don't drive, but she goes, but I was wondering if, um, you'd take me to the dance tonight. And he can tell this is sincere. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. He's like, what? And um, I, I kept waiting. I kept thinking maybe you'd ask me, but I don't know. Maybe you've asked somebody else. <laughs> right. And uh, <laughs> so I thought maybe if, if you didn't ask anybody yet, if you take me. And he's... Uh, and she goes, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. Um, I think I love you. And Eugene drops dead right there. <laughs> close. He doesn't drop dead, but it's pretty close. She goes, I, I think I love you, and and. I really want to get to know you better, and so would you take me to the dance? And Eugene goes, and then the bell rings, but he doesn't wake up. This is real. And kids start running around, getting to class, grabbing their stuff, and she, not understanding the law of proxemics, steps in real close to him and says, "Do do you think you could walk me home tonight? And then we could talk about, you know, going to the dance tonight and it's like yeah, yeah 
He's not spoken one word yet in this relationship. (laughs) And we all know it doesn't change after you get married. But anyway, um, and he's like, yeah. And time's ticking down. There's only two minutes to get to class now. And she leans in and she goes, do you think I could have a kiss goodbye? And what does he do? What does he do? Oh, he kisses her. You know, today's world, I've been struck by something profound about three years ago, and it just started eating away at me. We don't have a sin problem in this world. We don't have a sin problem in America, regardless of what Facebook says. We don't have a sin problem. We have a knowing God problem. I've changed my whole counseling routine. People come in, Pastor, I'm dealing with this, I'm struggling with this. And I have read a ton of books, and whether it's porn or addiction or whatever, I know exactly here's what we need to do. And I've changed everything and thrown it out the window. And I said, you just need to spend more time every day in the presence of Jesus and say, show me how much you love me. Because I'm Eugene. And Addison is Jesus. And when you understand how much he loves you, everything changes. Everything changes. You know, in Scripture, we see this amazing portion, Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus. He says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That's everything that God is. You think of everything in creation. In galaxies far away, they've discovered planets that are larger than our own galaxy. To the creatures that are at the bottom of the sea that are so intricately created that scientists tell us that it's more wonderful than the most giant, complex computer. And all that's within who God is and that he raised Christ from the dead and he has the power of death and life that everything that he is, is in me. And I manifest it only by knowing the love of God. It doesn't say, and you will manifest it and know it if you spend more time in prayer and keep all the rules. All through Scripture... There are areas where the, the, 
the tone of Scripture changes. Like after Genesis, after Genesis' first three chapters, the tone changes. Sin enters. Then after Genesis, you feel the tone in Scripture change. And then after Malachi, we have this 400 years of silence, and there's a new tone. But probably the greatest mark in, in Scripture, where everything stops on a dime and just goes, what? And everything changes, is a thank you so much for your testimony this morning. You talk to theologians, the biggest, like, swerve, like, are you kidding me? In Scripture, where everything changes, is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, meaning chapters 1 through 7, which if you have studied Romans or Galatians, you understand it's talking about all the things that we have tried to do to be right with God. We try harder. We keep the rules. We keep the laws. We keep the Ten Commandments. We do everything right. Therefore... None of that works. And it's only and solely upon what Christ did on the cross and accepting his forgiveness. And therefore, because of that, there is now no more condemnation. Finger pointing, keeping score, checking up a list. I'm better than them, not as good as them. I prayed three days in a row. Oh, I missed the fourth day. I gave, I gave almost a full 10% in the offering this Sunday. And... There's no more condemnation. It's all forgiveness. And then from that point on, it's all forgiveness. And Romans chapter 8 continues on the theme of God who is our Father, who embraces us. It's an amazing chapter. I just was blown away this morning when you were reading that. As it was read this morning, and you saved me time, thank you, I don't have to read it. We have these groanings. And it's based off our understanding from the Hebrew text in in the Old Testament, Imago Dei. We created in God's image. Why were we created in God's image? Simple, because God can't have intimate communion with an animal. And he seeks intimate communion. So he had to create us in his image so that he could have intimate communion with us. He didn't even create angels in his image. We're not quite sure if he has intimate communion with angels. They might just be order keepers. But he has created us with the facility, with the capacity to have intimate communication, intimacy with him. In fact, when we understand that word groanings, we hear it preached a lot of times when you're praying in the spirit and you don't know what to pray and you groan. And, and really the understanding there is, is if you study the Greek, it's of when you have a child, and maybe you remember this as a child growing up, and you're not feeling well or you hurt yourself and your father picks you up and he's, he's holding you and your head is on his chest and one ear is pressed against his chest and the other ear you can hear. And so you can hear what he says, but you can also hear the muffled. And you're not really quite sure what he says. I mean, you know what he says because the other ear can hear it. But that inside just. And if you're like, you know, some parents, they actually put their hand over the other ear. Because it calms you. And they just start talking. And there's that intimacy. And I don't really know what he's saying, but it's intimate. I'm in the arms of my father. And we have this communion. And that intimacy creates Romans 35 through 39, this love that we cannot escape. Have you ever read that verse and go, uh, you know, neither height nor depth nor principality nor power, no angel nor demon nor sea nor mountain can separate us from the love of God. And you go, well, then how come I can't feel it? If I can't be separated from it, 
Because you're missing the intimacy. You're missing that connection. And when you have that intimacy, as, as we wrap up Romans 8, forgiveness equals intimacy, and intimacy should reveal his love to us. I just heard John Bevere say this this last week, and I was like, guys, he stole my sermon. And then I know he preached here a couple weeks ago, so I don't know. I might be preaching his sermon. I don't know. John 14, 31, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And I grew up reading that as an ultimatum. Look, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Sweet jacket and shirt, by the way. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Like a parent telling his kid to clean up the room. If you want the car, you'll clean up this room. We read it like that. But that's not what that means. It's a statement and then the fruit. And what Paul's really saying is, or what John's really saying is, if you love him, you'll obey his commandments. If you build this intimate relationship and you know how much he loves you and are overwhelmed at how much he loves you, it is so easy to keep his commandments. So if you came up to me and you said, hey, Garth, I know how much you love your wife, and uh, man, I want to help you out here. I read this book. It's amazing. It's going to help you love your wife so much. I'm like, okay, tell me what I want to know. I, it's okay. Well, it's broken into chapters. Chapter one is, thou shalt have no other wife before you. Okay, sounds familiar. Chapter two, thou shalt worship no other wife. Uh, okay. Chapter 3, thou shalt not kill thy wife. And like, is this the Ten Commandments? Are you reading me the Ten Commandments? I'm, I'm way beyond that. Because having a healthy marital relationship is not about keeping score. That's a sin consciousness. A sin consciousness keeps score. I got to try harder. I got to do more. I got to, man, I messed up here and I messed up here and I messed up here. And we become that tail, that dog that chases its tail. And Satan is like, perfect. Because once we get saved, if, he, if we, once we get saved, he still doesn't quit fighting. He's like, and then I'm at least get you to chase your tail. So you're filled with guilt and condemnation. And you never grow and never experience and never walk in the fullness of who Christ is. Because you think you still have to earn it. Which trivializes everything Christ did on the cross. But when we have that intimacy, it trumps everything. If you, com- if you focus on the commands and the rule keeping, you will be religious, guilt-ridden, and sin conscious. Again, Romans 8, great verses 5 through 8, if you read them, talks about how when we live according to the law... We become overwhelmed and we feel even more sinful and more contaminated and we, all of a sudden, we become in, con- uh, in a contest with other people around us. Because now I not only want to check what I did wrong and did right, I'm going to check what you did and did wrong and did right. And now I just compound this guilt on me. And you go, so we just love God and sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you sin, don't focus on the sin. Just go back to God. Spend 30 seconds praying for forgiveness. And then the next hour just saying, Father, I love you. Show me how much you love me. And just fall in love. I mean, if Earl comes home one day and is talking to Mary and says, Mary, I love you so much. 
But I want to tell you, when I go to the gym, oh man, there are women in leotards and spandex and they're bending over and doing all these things and not going to go real far with Mary. Now his heart might be right, but if he spends 45 minutes in conversation saying, but I love you, but this is all the things that I was struggling with. And Mary's going to be like, you know, you should have stopped 44 minutes ago. Rather than just focusing on me and my relationship with me, the greatest marriage therapist in the world, John Gottman, who put 10 marriage therapists together, they won't know half as much as this guy, he put it succinctly. He said, if you are having problems in your marriage, don't try to work through your differences because you never will. Just spend time staying in love and the differences will disappear. Pretty good words from a man who's secular because that's what Christ says. Focus on me, love me, pursue me, push into me. Genesis 39, story of Joseph, and Joseph is the, you know, not Jesus' father, but Joseph from the Old Testament, coat of many colors. You know the story, he's picked on, he's the youngest of uh, 11 brothers, and they don't like him, and they pick on him, they beat him up, and they throw him in a well, and they tell their dad that, a wild animal killed him, and, and then they sell him into slavery, and it's just not been good for Joseph. And then he finally starts to get somewhere stable. He's working in the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar's like, you know, he's the general. He's the Schwarzkopf. He's the Pettis. He's the man. And like any man in the military with all that power working for Pharaoh, he obviously is going to marry some hot-smoking, nasty, loose-edged wife. Her name's Lisa. And uh, everyone knows Elisa like that, so that name pops into my head. Anyway, sorry. Sorry, Lisa's. Um, and she's trying to bed him. She's like, come to bed with me, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. And at one point, she grabs him, and she's like, come to bed with me. And she's gorgeous. And what does Joseph say? Amazing. Because immediately his mind begins to ruminate through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not fornicate. Ten Commandments weren't out yet. He didn't know the Ten Commandments. What did he say? I could never do this against my God. There's your answer for what you struggle with. You want to click on that? You want to take that? You want to say that? You want to steal this? You want to... I could never do that against my God. If you knew how much He loved me, you would understand, I can't do that. It's a, I can't. Not only that, it makes sharing the gospel so easy. Because out of this love, you just, you have to share. Like I was saying before, sin consciousness, when we focus on trying to do better, work harder, do this, there's the sin conscious, and then what happens out of that is we feel so guilty, we can't share. We don't feel the freedom to share the love of God and tell people about Jesus and pray for those who are out and about that might need healing because we're just like, I'm not good enough. No, you are good enough. 
That's what the cross was for. But when you fall in love with Jesus, now it's just driven. I get tired of people who tell me all the time, well, it's easy for you to witness to people because you're a big guy and you're raising a pastor's home and you're really good looking. (laughs) Debatable. And I'm like, no, that's not it. Because people who don't want to hear it, they don't care who you are, how big you are, what you know, or what your background is. They'll tell you to your face, shut up. I don't want to hear about this. I get told, I get told, don't talk to me about Jesus every day. But I get a lot of people who sit and listen. I get a lot of people I lead to the Lord. I get a lot of people that I get to pray for. And it's not out of, like, me, like, look, I finally got it together. I'm going to go, no, I just hurt, man. I hurt. I'm around people, and I just go, man, you need to know what I know. You need to know the Jesus I know. Even around religious people who are trying their best and caught in that circle chasing their tail, I'm like, you need to stop that, man. Jesus loves you. He's forgiven you. Focus on him. A great story that really, really pulls this all together is in Luke 15, and you know the story. It's the prodigal son. Young kid, dad's successful, multimillionaire, has this big company, and he's tired of it. He's 24, 25. I'm tired of this. He goes to his dad and says, you know, I wish she would die so I could have my inheritance. We could split it between me and my brother. And his brother's older, and he's helping with the company. And his dad says, you know what? We don't have to wait till I die. I love you so much. I'll give you your half. Here's all the money. Here's your inheritance. And the son goes out, just parties his brains out. Goes to Las Vegas and just five, six years, just has all the friends in the world, all the fun in the world, all the drugs in the world, all the women in the world, all, everything. And then at one point it runs dry, and then he realizes how, friend, how many friends he really doesn't have. And he's embarrassed. Everyone's left him. He's eating cold, stale, day-old food out of the back of a Taco Bell dumpster. Taco Bell's not good when it's fresh and hot. Imagine it out of a dumpster. Somewhere here, there's a Taco Bell owner named Lisa, and I'm going to get killed at the end of service. Sure of it. And he has this thought, he says, man, if I was back at my dad's, if I could just get back to Minneapolis and I was just the parking attendant, just a slave, if you read the story, he says, if I was just the servant, at least I'd have a place to sleep and food to eat. And so he goes, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to beg my dad to just be his servant. And so he does. He runs back and he goes, Dad, and his dad runs to him, which is a whole other sermon. It's amazing. And he's like, Dad, Dad, listen, I messed up. I blew it. And if I could just be a servant, if I could just be a servant, can you believe he said that? If I could just be a servant... Is that on your heart today? He's like, God, I just want to be your servant. It sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds so righteous and pious. If I could just be your servant, 
And the father doesn't even let him finish. He cuts him off. Whoa, whoa, my son is back. My son is back. Get the robe, get the ring, get the Reeboks, fire up the roast. Let's go. The robe signifies whose family you're a part of. You wear that robe and you're like, ah, he's a part of that family. Wow. The ring gives him the power and the authority of that family. The Reeboks shows that he's not a slave. He's not a servant because they didn't get shoes. And the roast is a precursor. It's a symbol of the sacrifice that's made. I just want the relationship, son. That's all I want. I want the relationship. You don't have to be a servant. You have to, don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn it. I just want you to be my son. I just want you to be back in the family. You know, the most amazing thing about this story is that it wasn't new. Pharisees told this story all the time. It's one of the few parables that Jesus told that had been told numerous times. And Pharisees back then, they kind of chalked up, you know, they're kind of storytellers against storytellers to see who was the best and they would attract their followers and their students by being one of the toughest pharisees one of the toughest teachers and so when they would get to the point of telling the story and he would say father i'll just be a servant if i can just come back and the pharisees would finish the story with you'll be a servant for seven years and you will have to pay me back this and you will have to do this and you will have to do this so jesus is telling this story Pharisees are standing around going, well, that's not original. (laughs) Thought he was the Messiah. Be a little more creative than telling something we've already told. And then the wheels fall off because at the end he goes, wait. You don't have to be a servant. I want you. I want you. I just want you. I want the relationship. That's how much he loved the son. He just wants the relationship, and yet we think we can earn it, and we can't. We just walk in it. We just, God, show me, teach me. May I know you more. Show me how much you love me. Overwhelm me with your love. And all of a sudden, it starts to seep in, and you become overwhelmed. I was at a job two years ago, and I was just praying quietly, and I'm working with four other knuckleheads, and we're moving, working for a moving company. And I'm opening up this truck, and, and God just overwhelmed me, and I'm doing stuff. And this guy goes, did you hurt yourself? Because I'm just crying. And he goes, and I go, no. He goes, what's the matter? And I go, you're not going to believe this, but Jesus loves me. I still can't wrap my head around it. You know how easy it is to serve God when you know Jesus loves you? When you've built that intimacy where you just know he's got my picture on his refrigerator. He's got his iPhones filled with 10,000 pictures of me. He's always talking to his angels about me. I mean, he's whipped over me. I don't have to earn anything for his love. He already paid the price. Let's pray. Father, may we begin to experience and know your love in a new, in an unprecedented way. May we walk in that. 
May it be that which lifts us and carries us through our day, through our walk. Is that intimacy with you and that understanding of who you are and how much you love us. In your name, amen. Thank you. Tom.